Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show on CBS Sports Radio. You know, I'm not sure how many times I have started a show by reminding everybody it is a sports show. But sports is not that important on a day like this. And this is another day where we all wake up to news that 12 people were murdered in the Borderline Bar and Grill in Thousand Oaks, California. We wake up to that story yet again. Now, as many of you know, I am from Southern California. This is a show that is based in Southern California. I've essentially lived my entire life in Southern California, and I know that area very well. I know Thousand Oaks. I've driven past the borderline. It's right off the Ventura Freeway. I have close friends in that area. It's not far from where I grew up. And like me, a lot of you listening right now know Thousand Oaks. Many of you listening right now live in the area. Maybe your kids have played sports there. Maybe you've gone to dinner there. Maybe you've shopped there. Maybe you've taken in a movie there. Last night, a bunch of college kids went to a bar for college night and country line dancing. And many of them never came home. So, if you think that I'm going to see that on the news and then just shrug and talk about Le'Veon Bell's contract situation or some crazy dunks in the association, you cannot be more wrong. I'll get to these topics at some point, but I can't start the show with it. And not right now. Not when this is happening. Now, a lot of sports talk radio is about making things that are unimportant seem really important. But I'm certainly not going to make things that are important seem unimportant. And when a dozen people are murdered right up the road from me, I'm going to start the program and talk about that. Now, some of you might not want to hear this. And if you're tempted to change your station right now, I understand that. I would rather that you didn't do that. But if you do, think about why you're doing that. Think about why this makes you uncomfortable. And then maybe take some action. Some of you might want to view sports as a place to escape the news. And it is. Certainly it's that. But you know what else is a place to escape the news? A country line dancing bar in Thousand Oaks, California. Or a movie theater in Colorado. Or a college campus in Virginia. Or a high school in Florida. A concert in Las Vegas, a church in Texas, a high school in Colorado, a club in Florida, an elementary school in Connecticut. Those are just a few of the high-profile mass murders. There are so many more. Maybe you can remember some of them. Maybe you remember all of them, and maybe you remember none of them. Do you remember Columbine? Remember we all said that would never happen again. It did. Remember Sandy Hook? Remember how he said that was the last straw? That was never going to happen again. It has. We're not even two weeks removed from a mass murder of senior citizens in a synagogue in Pittsburgh, and we're already going through it again. I mean, mass murders have become so commonplace, it's practically part of the weather report. I'll tell you about it. We'll go to a commercial break, and then people say thoughts and prayers. And then they move on. So let me try something. Let me read you a quick piece from a CNN report. Jason Kaufman was one of the parents anxiously awaiting news Thursday morning about those inside the bar. His son Cody, 22, was there with friends. And while his friends got out, they didn't know where Cody was. 
He told CNN and HLN. The father told CNN he can track his son's cell phone, and the tracking indicates it was still in the bar Thursday morning. Quote, it's at the club. It's not moving. That's the problem, said Coleman, who was awaiting information at a center for relatives. Quote, I'm very emotional right now. This is my firstborn son, and it's tough. End quote. The father said Cody's friends woke him up at 1 a.m. to tell him about the shooting. Quote, I'm afraid that Cody ran to the gunman instead of away from the gunman. That's the kind of boy Cody is. End quote. So this is a father saying that about his 22-year-old son. A father talking about how he can track his son's cell phone, but the phone's not moving. I mean, can you imagine that? Think about that. I know I am. So your thoughts and your prayers for the victims, their families, their friends, plus the survivors who had to witness what happened last night. It's important. It's really important, but it's not enough. There have been so many thoughts and prayers after mass murderers over the years that if there were enough, there wouldn't be more mass murders. And that moment of silence has always been followed by more moments of silence And then nothing else. At a certain point, we need to decide as a country if this is okay, if this is normal. Because right now, by not doing anything, we're saying it is okay and it is normal. We're accepting it. We're saying it's okay that people can be murdered indiscriminately in clubs, in churches, in synagogues, at schools, at concerts, and in movie theaters. Now, I don't know the answers. I don't have the answers. But I know that what we're doing is not enough. And I do genuinely send my thoughts and my prayers to the victims of the Thousand Oaks shooting, to their families, to their friends, to the survivors who have to live with this pain. And I would suggest that the best way to honor their lives is to do something, anything, to make sure that this does not happen again. So if you do want to talk about this, we can talk about this. You can call me toll-free, 1-800-636-8686. You know you can follow me on Twitter, at Jim Rome. You can also email me at Rome, R-O-M-E, at haveatake.com. I've got lots of other things to talk about, of course, but nothing more important than that. All right, let's go to the telephones, 1-800-636-8686. Phone lines are open. Let's go to Appleton, Wisconsin. Kevin, nice to have you on the show. How are you? Fine. Um, hi, Jim. First time caller. Um, I normally don't call into shows like this, but I just had a comment on your your uh, take on all this. I agree with you 100%. Uh, if people have problems and they're having issues in their life, the answer isn't to go out and harm other people. We have to have respect for human life. They've got to go seek help. They've got to do whatever, talk to family, talk to friends, take care of their issues. Just because you're having a bad life doesn't mean you've got to mess up everybody else's. It's just, it's a selfish, cruel act, and as a society, we have to have more respect for human life than that, actually all life, but it's just really upsetting to me, because like you said, it's so commonplace. I was at work, I was in the break room, and people are just going about their normal business, and the, the coverage was on TV, and I just, people don't even pause and look at it anymore. They just walk by like nothing's going on, 
and it's really uh, sad that that's the that's the point we've come to in society. So that's all I have to say about it, and thank you for the time. And thank you for your time. You know, I think about those families and the families that lost loved ones and those survivors who now have to live with this. I think about that father that I mentioned who had his son whose phone was in that bar and the phone's not moving and he can't find his son and his friends are calling up at 1 a.m. telling him about the shooting. And as I mentioned, you know, our thoughts and our prayers go out to the victims and the families and their friends and the survivors who had to witness this and live with this for the rest of their lives. But how many times can we say thoughts and prayers and then we move on and we'll say never again, never again, but it keeps happening again and not enough is getting done. Thoughts and prayers are necessary, but it's not enough because it's not changing anything. There have been so many thoughts and prayers after so many mass murders over the years. If that were enough, it would stop happening, but it's not. It happened a couple of weeks ago. It happened again. And again, this area that I'm talking about, Thousand Oaks, you know, I've been up there and I said, a number of you live there. A number of you have been there. A number of you have seen your kids play sports there. It's a suburban community. It's a really nice place. If it could happen there, it could happen anywhere, and it will again. Tonight's the night, Thursday night football, a chance to get down on the Steelers and the Panthers, and a chance to fade my man Trevor Price. Do it at my bookie. If you're looking for a place to check out sports betting, you have to check out my bookie. You know, ever since I started doing this podcast, people have been asking me over and over again for advice. Normally, they want to know who to bet. Who do you bet this week? Listen, the truth is, I don't know, right? I can give you an educated take, but I don't know for certain. Now, I know a lot of you think you do know. I know a lot of you know you know. If that's the case, you need to check out my bookie. Remember, who you're betting on is just as important as who you're betting with. This is why I always tell people to bet with my bookie. Trust me, they are the very best bet this season. They have been in business for years. They have great reviews online, and their mobile site is so easy to use. I would only recommend a service to you that I've been using myself. This is why I'm urging you to make your way to my bookie. You win, they pay. They have in-game live betting, the most rewarding player perks in the business, and for you fantasy guys out there, you can even bet the over-under on how many fantasy points a player will score each game. Join right now, and my bookie will match your deposit dollar for dollar. Use the promo code Rome and activate that offer. Visit my bookie online today. That's M Y B O O K I E. Do not forget to use the promo code Rome when creating your account, and you can claim up to one thousand in free play. You play, you win, you get paid with my bookie. One eight hundred six three six eight six eight six. Let's go to Ivan in Hesperia, California. Nice to have you, Ivan. How are you? Good, Jim. Good. Thank you. Um, you know, my wife and I, we, uh, we woke up to this uh, horrific news this morning. Uh, we have a son that goes to uh, UC Santa Barbara, proud gaucho, proud gaucho parents. Son lives in Isla Vista. I want to give him a shout out to them. Um, we look at each other and we say, you know, what are the odds? What are the odds that our son went down there? You know, it's, you know, obviously, you know, the area, you know, it's an hour away, you know, about an hour from the campus. And let's just send him a text. You know, we send like at 730 in the morning. We send him a couple of texts, no response. And then screw it. I'll just call him. So I call him once, twice, three times. And, and anxiety really kicks in. And you keep thinking, well, what are the odds? What are the odds? Because, you know, my, my son and his friends, you know, they like going down there. You know, they like hitting different spots, you know, inventory, whatever. 
and the anxiety is real, starts kicking in. And then it's not till, you know, our son calls us back where, you know, what's wrong guys. And he didn't even know the news and we're upset. I'm, I don't mean to pull a Jeff in San Antonio, but I'm, I'm, I mean, he's like, what's wrong. And I tell him, son, you know, I don't, obviously, you know, this is what happened. And, and just to, you know, my wife and I, we start talking just to think about the parents that will always feel that anxiety and never hear their kid call back. It was, uh, something i mean it, 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 i can't believe how how hard it hit us today you know again you think of what are the odds that he was there but what are the odds of this happening in a town like thousand oaks or, you know a nice quiet town like that and again no one's safe no one's exempt to this type of violence and crime that happens to us nowadays but i swear more than anything i appreciate you bringing this out you know and, and going breaking format it's uh it's awesome i mean i really appreciate your show and thank you just for uh, giving us this time to really speak about this what's going on i mean you got it i appreciate your thoughts very much you know I understand that the entire show i don't suspect is going to be like that you know if we want to talk about this for an entire day we could i'm fine with that too i've got other topics i've got some interviews but if you want to call in and share your thoughts and talk about it go ahead den lesks is participating, and I think actually he sums this up very well. Jim, there were students from Cal State Channel Island, Moore Park College, Cal Lutheran, and Pepperdine in attendance at college night at Borderline Bar and Grills last night. What a horrific night it must have been for parents of students at those schools waiting to hear if their child was okay. Thoughts and prayers must be accompanied by tangible actions and real change and how society deals with mental illness and access to guns. But in the wake of this tragedy, which occurred only hours ago, our thoughts and prayers go out to the people who were wounded and the families and the schools of the people who lost their lives, including Ventura County Sheriff Ron Helis, who entered the building to protect those inside. Den Lusks, I agree with everything you just said. I mean, a college night, a college night. These kids were line dancing in a bar where they thought they were safe. It was Thousand Oaks. College, li- college night and line dancing, a church, a movie theater, a concert, a suburban community. It can happen anywhere. And it will again if something's not done. And again, I don't have all the answers. In fact, I really don't have any answers. I just know that what we're doing is not good enough because it keeps happening over and over and over again. Let's go to Texas this time. Jason, nice to have you on the show. Jason, how are you? I'm good, Jim. Hey, man, you're the man for putting us on, breaking format. I just want you to know that, you know, this is this has got to stop. I mean, we got to do something. And to date, I don't think anyone's tried anything. And it's a shame. Yeah, Jason, it is. Thank you very much. It's horrific. It's a shame. It's a tragedy. It's terrifying. It's horrific. I'm telling you, I know this area. I don't care where you live. It could happen in your neighborhood. It's happening. It can happen anywhere. And if this is the new normal, and this is what we accept, and this is okay, and we don't do anything... It will continue to happen, and it can happen anywhere. We go to Michigan. Fred is on the line. Fred, how are you? Hey, Jim, I'm good. Um, you know, you, you, I wake up this morning, and first thing I do is I turn the news on, and I see this. And and my, my honestly, my first thoughts are, man, I, you just hurt for people. You, you just hurt for people. 
And then the second thought I have is, what the heck is wrong with people? I just, I can't comprehend, I can't comprehend why somebody would ever want to make a decision like this. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a father of three kids. I, I'm a, I'm a pastor here in Michigan. I'm also a chaplain in the Michigan State Police. Uh, I'm a, I, I am a pro-gun guy. I'm a hunter. But, Jim, I'm, I'm not a... I'm not an NRA member. Matter of fact, they call me, want me to join. I'm not interested in that. It's not a political thing for me, and I, I just can't comprehend. Uh, you know, my thought on this is, is, is people are always wanting to talk about when something like this happens that we need gun reform. You know, I, I don't disagree with that, but that's that's. I, I think to an extent, it's a little bit of a lazy thought because we, then all of a sudden we're thinking that okay, so if this if this person couldn't have gotten his hands on a gun or a weapon today, that are we all to believe that he would have made the decision that, oh, you know what, I'm just going to live as a, as a good citizen in society today, that that would not have happened. When people are acting and thinking like this, they, they, uh, they will go to whatever extreme they need to go to. So more than anything, this is a civility issue. This is a human decency issue. This isn't political. And I wish that, the, that, 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 that our politicians would quit trying to, to curry favor with that. This is not a political issue. This is a love thy neighbor issue, right? A love thy neighbor. Jesus gave us two commands, love God and love each other. We don't need any more than that. Why can't we figure out those two things? Right. Love God and love each other. It's Fred, that let me, simple. Yeah, let me jump in. Fred, I appreciate that. It's extremely upsetting. And I don't have the answers. I don't have the solutions. I'm just stating what I think is very obvious. What we're doing is not working. What we're doing is not enough. It's not a case of never again. This will never happen again. It keeps happening over and over and over again. And with greater frequency. Not less. So I'm not sure exactly what the answer is. I just know that what we're doing is not working. And I'm just really getting tired of thoughts and prayers and a moment of silence. And then let's go back to our life and just hope it doesn't happen again because it will. It is. Let's go to Utah. Bo in Utah. Hi, Bo. How are you? Hey, Rome. How's it going? It's good. Good. You know, I'm just, I'm sick about this. I grew up in Ventura, California. My parents live out there. I used to go to the borderline all the time. It took at least five to ten minutes to get in because they checked you. They made sure you didn't have guns or weapons or anything. Then they turn right around and say, that's an infringement on people's rights. So then they let people start carrying guns and threatening people, and then this happens. They need to just get a clue. I mean, how, how many more lives do we, do we have to lose for people to finally make a statement and say enough is enough. Exactly, Bo. I mean, how many more lives do we have to lose? Thank you. He said he used to go to that bar. How many more lives do we have to lose? How many more mass murderers do there need to, does there need to be before something's done? And thoughts and prayers are necessary. Moment of silence is fine. But this in and of itself is not going to fix this, clearly. Thursday's Daily Jungle brought to you by my pals at Ferguson. Listen to this. No matter how big or small your team is, Ferguson has a winning game plan for pro contractors with thousands of plumbing repair parts, knowledgeable associates, and the largest national footprint in the game. When the pressure is on, you can count on Ferguson. 
Denver Nuggets are out quickly this season. They are 9-2. and two. They're in first place in the Northwest Division. We are joined right now by their head coach. He is in his fourth season with the Nuggets. He agreed to a two-year extension last month. They are in first place, and they are hosting Brooklyn tomorrow night. The head coach of the Nuggets, Michael Malone, is my guest. Michael, great to have you on the show. How are you? I'm doing well. It's, uh, it's always good to be on with you, Jim. Always good to have you, Michael. Thanks so much. I know you're coming off a tough loss to Memphis last night, 89-87. You never want to lose a game, obviously. But how about one positive aspect? How pleased were you with the way your defense held the Grizzlies to 39 points in the second half? Yeah, obviously, uh, I think a big part of us getting off to such a good start and being 9-2 has been the defense. And after 11 games, I think we're second in the NBA in defensive efficiency. Uh, which means we've come a long way on that end. Uh, very small sample size. Hopefully we can continue that for the rest of the year. But last night in Memphis, our defense definitely kept us in the game and gave us chances. Uh, unfortunately, that loss came down to our inability to take care of the ball, having 19 turnovers for 23 points on the road, which, as you know, Jim, is going to make it very hard to win uh, against a quality opponent. It's going to make it tough, especially against a quality opponent like that, Michael. But you're doing this. You're off to a great start, and certainly it's not with smoke and mirrors. I mean, this is legitimate, and you're doing it, for instance, without Will Barton, who's recovering from a hip injury. What's that tell you then about the depth of this team, that you can lose a quality player like that, and then other guys will step up? Yeah, I think it does speak to the depth, and I give a lot of credit to Tim Conley, our, our president, who's you know put this roster together over the uh, last four years since I've been here. Uh, last season was a great example of that when Paul Millsap, uh, Paul Millsap missed 44 games with a broken wrist, and we go 24-20. and 20. This year, Will Barton goes down in game two, and we find ways to plug guys in, whether it's Torrey Craig, Juancho Hernan Gomez, Malik Beasley, guys taking advantage of the opportunity given to them and going out there and helping us win games and win games at a high level. So it's great to see young guys stepping up and taking advantage of opportunities. We're talking to Michael Malone, the head coach of the Denver Nuggets, and then some other guys I want to ask you about. Jamal Murray had that monster 48-point game against the Celtics earlier this week, and to an extent, that final shot might have distracted people from the overall performance. He's still just 21. What do you make of where his game is right now? Well, and, and I agree with that. I, I think so much was made about the the shot at the end and the unwritten rule in the NBA and being disrespectful. I think that took away from Jamal's performance, which was an incredible performance. 21 years old, playing against the number one defensive team in the NBA, and he gets 48 points, and he did it uh, in, in a hell of a fashion, making tough, tough shots time after time. And Brad Stevens even said after the game, they, they threw everything at Jamal, and he was just in one of those zones. And uh, I think last year was a great uh, development, growing year for Jamal. He started in the NBA as a young man, 20 years old, going into the season. And as the year went on, all the way down to our last uh, playoff push to end the season, where we went 6-1, and one, Jamal was fantastic. He loves the big moment, and he's not afraid of the moment. And, uh, and the scary thing is he's only going to get better. And we really love our young core here in Denver. He's just 21. Denver Nuggets head coach Michael Malone joins us once again. Now, you and I have talked about Nikola Jokic numerous times in the past because, frankly, he is one of the more compelling guys in the entire league. He had a relatively quiet game last night. But overall, it seems like he's more locked in now than he used to be. Would you agree with that? And how have you gone about coaching him and helping him to know when to have fun and when to grind? Yeah, I, I think uh, when you look at Nikola's uh, stat line, now last night, obviously, um, a relatively quiet night. He only took one shot, and that one shot was the last shot of the game. 
um, which was a great look for him from the three-point line. Uh, so we need to get him more aggressive, more involved, and looking to score a little bit more. But what I love about that, Jim, is that we're 9-2, and two, and the way Nikola plays the game, he can impact the game without scoring. You know, he can go out there and have 16 assists in the game and, and dominate, and that's what I love about him. Uh, in the four years I've been here and the years I've been coaching him, I've seen tremendous growth um, as a player, but more importantly, I've seen tremendous growth in terms of his maturity, his mental toughness, his ability to handle adversity, deal with the referees. And uh, he has to understand, obviously, this past summer, um, the Denver Nuggets gave him a max contract, which he fully deserves. But with that comes responsibility. And he has to understand that all eyes are on him. And when things aren't going well, all of our young players are going to look to him first and foremost. And I think he's really taken that to heart. He's trying to be more of a leader. He's trying to uh, handle those adverse situations in a much more mature, uh, mature manner. And, uh, you know, all I can see is progress. And, and that's all you want from a young kid, getting better, carrying this team, the, the, the face of the franchise. And uh, there's a lot on his shoulders, but he's handling it very well. Uh, and we're off to a great start, and Nicole is a very, very big part of that. We are talking Denver Nuggets basketball head coach Michael Malone back on the program. Now, one guy who is yet to play, Michael, this season, but who's still making a contribution is Isaiah Thomas. Your relationship with him goes back to Sacramento. Brad Stevens was saying that when Isaiah was in Boston, he would always talk about you and how much he trusted you and that you allowed him to be himself. So how would you describe your relationship with Isaiah? Yeah, you know, it's funny, uh, go back to Sacramento and, and, and I, I get the job and um, we hit it off right away. And, and I think one of the reasons that we were able to establish that from early on in our relationship was uh, my communication with Isaiah and my honesty with Isaiah. You know, I, Isaiah wanted to start and, and I decided that um, I was going to start Grievous Vasquez in front of Isaiah. And I told Isaiah, I said, listen, I want you to understand this. Um, when I make these decisions, it's, it's not what's best for Isaiah Thomas. It's going to be what's best for our team. And I think bringing you off the bench is going to be best for our team. And you're going to close most games uh, and finish most games for us. And he did that. That season with, with me as his head coach, he averaged 20 points a game, six assists. And I think the thing that he really loved about uh, playing uh, for me in Sacramento was that I never asked him to be something he wasn't. And you see that a lot in the NBA. Isaiah was a scorer in high school. He was a scorer in college. And guess what? He's a scorer now. Um, I let him play basketball to the best of his abilities, to his strengths. I didn't want him to be something he wasn't. And I think he always admired and appreciated that because too often guys were asking him to be a John Stockton point guard. And quite frankly, that's not who his, uh, what his game was. And uh, we stayed in touch throughout the years. And then when this summer came around, Jim, and free agency hit, um, everything he's gone through on and off the court in the last two years, he needed to play for somebody that he had history with, uh, that he trusted and knew would look out for him. And I think that's a big reason that he decided to come to Denver. Uh, and when we get him back, obviously healthy, he's going to be a great contribution. And as you mentioned, he's contributing right now, even not playing. His leadership, his voice, his presence is, uh, is really, really impactful for such a young locker room. It's such an interesting response, Michael. And he said exactly that about you. He said there's only been three coaches in his life that he really trusted and wanted to play for. It was you and Brad Stevens and Lorenzo Romar. And it's because of what you just said. You did not try to make him something he's not. You let him be him. You know, when you consider what he's been through physically, what he's been through emotionally, the kind of money that maybe he thought he had but he doesn't have, what's it meant? What's it say about him that he's meant as much to your team in the locker room and that he's connecting with the young players the way he has? What's it say about him as a presence and a leader? 
Oh, it, it says says everything. Uh, and I had told them, I said, listen, um, until we get you healthy, you know, your impact, you're not just coming here um, to be Isaiah the player. Uh, you're coming here to be the guy that was an MVP candidate. You're coming here to be a guy that is a veteran in the locker room to teach Jamal Murray and Monte Morris, our young guards, uh, how to play the game and how to learn the game and see the game. Um, I mean, but we have a quiet team, Jim, and, and to have Isaiah's personality, to have his leadership. You know, right after that Boston game, right, I, I had our team together in the locker room. Hell of a win for us, but I said, did any of the vets have anything to say to Jamal about the shot he just took? And Isaiah, you know, jumped into it right away and talked to Jamal about how you can't do that. The league, everybody's watching, and you don't want to get that reputation because guys are going to come after you. Uh, so just to have, when you have a player saying that kind of stuff, it's so much more impactful than me saying it. And and I learned that a long time ago. Don Chaney, who I work with in New York, would always say, if if the coach is always holding guys accountable, you can be a good team. But when the players hold each other accountable, you have a chance to be a great team. And I think Isaiah brings that to to the table. And and I love him. I'm I'm thankful that he and his family are here. And I can't wait for him to get back on the court. Yeah, once again, so interesting that you let him make that point as opposed to making that point yourself. But, Michael, the point is also we're talking about a young player. I mean, Jamal is 21, and the league has gotten younger and younger and younger. So has that impacted the way you coach and develop players? In other words, does it put more of a premium on the relationship between the players and the coaching staff as the league does get younger? Oh, no doubt. And, and I learned from my father. I was up growing up in the gym, been around the game my whole life. Uh, and one thing my father told me years ago was the greatest gift I can give any player is confidence. And I think one of the reasons all of our young players have really developed here is because they've been given a chance to play. But more importantly, Jim, they've been given a chance to play through mistakes. None of our players are looking over their shoulder and saying, am I coming out if I miss a shot or I turn the ball over? And that's a really delicate balance to develop as many young players as we have, but also to have the expectations to win at the level that we have. That's, that's really delicate to do, and I think I give our assistant coaches, our play development staff, a ton of credit. We spend a lot of time with our players, not just on the court, but off the court. I mean, I go to Europe, I go to see Nicola in Serbia, Wancho in Spain, go to see players around our country just to develop those relationships and uh, to have that trust, that faith, and, and, and to let our guys know that we really care about them as, uh, as people first and players second. Michael Malone is my guest. Michael, before you go, one last guy on your roster I have to ask you about. You've got so many fascinating players on that roster, guys who have really helped to develop that you've helped develop and find a new level. But I want to talk about a video clip that went viral in training camp. It's a video of a guard from Loyola by the name of <laughs> Michael Malone running a drill. And I've got to say, you had Jamal Murray on his heels with your ball handling. At what point they had to double you along the sideline just to get the ball out of your hands. How would you describe your game these days? Uh, I, no game. <laughs> and, and, and I, hey, Jim, I feel bad that you wasted time even watching that clip. But, you know, what I try to do um, – I'll pick my spots, but I'll, but I'll hop in to practice drill, especially in training camp. Uh, you know, during the lockout one year when I was an assistant coach in Golden State, we went down to watch the Niners practice with Coach Harbaugh, and uh, it was like a college atmosphere, and he was getting in the drills with his players, and he was hopping in with the quarterbacks, and, and I loved it, and, and that's something that always stuck with me, and I'll hop out there, and for some reason when I hop in a drill, the intensity goes way way up. Guys can't wait to hit me, to scream me, to try to get into me, so – uh, we have fun with it. We have a great group of guys, and uh, 
I'm thankful we're off to a great start, and hopefully that can continue tomorrow night against Brooklyn. Michael, what do you mean wasting my time? I've been watching it all morning long. We're still running it on <laughs> CBS Sports Network. I'm awed by it. I'm awed by the handle. I'm awed by the intensity. You're breaking ankles. You're sending a message. I love it. It's absolutely awesome. The Nuggets are out quickly. They are 9-2. and two. Michael Malone is their head coach. Michael, so good to get caught up. Appreciate the relationship and the conversation, as always. Great to have you back. Same here, Jim. I look forward to being on with you again, man. All the best. Yeah, you too. That was great. Le'Veon Bell went on Twitter yesterday. Le'Veon Bell has been going on Twitter quite a bit now. I mean, great. Fantastic. I guess because he went on Twitter and he wrote it upside down in his font, everybody's supposed to get all hyped about how profound or how wise that must be. Like, look at the upside down tweets. Yeah, whatever. I mean, I read it. It was fine. Didn't change the world for me. In fact, didn't change anything at all. Listen, I get this. I understand. Football is a physically punishing sport. Running back is a brutal position. I fully support every guy maximizing his leverage to get the utmost and trying to make as much money as they possibly can, as quickly as they can. It's business. I understand this. It's just that this particular saga has gone on for so long, and now it's getting so weird that it's gone way past the point of being interesting. Like, I never thought that I would say this, but one of the most exciting players in the league is now boring. Le'Veon is boring. Maybe not Le'Veon the guy, but his situation is really boring. Not intriguing, not interesting. I mean, probably to him. You're probably still interesting to him. If I were him, I'd be really interested in the situation. I'd be thinking about my situation all day, every single day. But at this point, I don't really care if this guy's playing basketball on a local run or tweeting in some wacky upside-down font or anything like that. Just like I'm really not overly concerned about transition tags, franchise tags, unrestricted free agency, restricted free agency. Again, if I were him, I'd be into it. But for anybody else, for everybody else, it's really pretty boring. For the record, in case you are interested, and I'm sure you're not, if you turn your phone upside down, or you took your iMac and you turn that upside down, the tweets read like this. You know, if you, if you stood on your head and you read the tweet, like I'm trying to right now, if you did that, what it says is, quote, just about everybody has an opinion on my life and worried about what I'm doing. Don't judge me off my decision because maybe this isn't what you do. But most people don't take the time to simply read between the lines, and that's clearly on them. I'm not going to apologize for what I believe is right for myself, family, and the rest of my peers, period. Also, if you're really finding the time to figure out what I'm saying, you've proved my point, end quote. Now, again, if I were interested, if I were really interested, I'd point out that it's a little weird to talk about people reading between the lines when you've written two tweets upside down. But again, I'm not that interested. Listen, I agree with Le'Veon. I'm not looking for him to apologize to anybody for his contract situation. Just don't expect people to still be interested in it. It's gone on for way too long. Nobody cares anymore. Really, nobody. I guess I could get worked up about an unnamed Pittsburgh Steelers teammate telling the NFL Network, quote, this is Le'Veon 
or this Le'Veon thing is just a cloud over us at this point. Just make a decision, sign or not, be in or out, and let's all move forward. End quote. That's a teammate, anonymously, telling the NFL Network that. You can tell that teammate is frustrated. I guarantee that teammate is not only speaking for himself, but there was a time, and maybe not even that long ago, maybe a few months ago, where that would have been really juicy, really spicy. You know, a teammate calling Bell's situation, quote, a cloud over us. Now, that would have been something I could have spent some time on. That would have been something that I would have been into. You know, I could have broke that thing down for an hour. Does this player speak for the entire locker room? Is he right? Is it a cloud? What do his teammates think of him? What do his teammates think of that situation? Did he misplay his hand? Should he have taken one of the previous offers? Are his teammates talking too much about his contract situation? And are they violating that code, that rule that says you never talk about another man's money? And when he comes back, how is he going to be received in that locker room? If he comes back, what if he never comes back? Has James Conner made Le'Veon Bell obsolete? I mean, a while ago, I would have posed all those questions. A while ago, I would have thought this thing was pretty interesting. A while ago, I would have made it a major topic. I would have thought that and more. But I don't. Not anymore. Brett Favre's annual retirement and unretirement thinks that this drama has gone on a little bit too long and worn out its interest. At least that fiasco gave us the glorious Dilla hunt. Brett Favre goes back to pass. He pumps. Hey, y'all, watch this. Now he fires. Ah. Can't believe what I'm seeing right now. We got two more. Let's go. Come on, Jerry. You know, there is some entertainment in that, but not in this. There's nothing entertaining, entertaining about this. He's not giving us that. We're at the point right now where literally anything and everything that could be said about the situation has already been said. There's nothing left. So I hope that Tuesday's deadline really is a deadline and that this really is the end of this whole thing. Then again, all along, there have been one deadline or has been one deadline after another that we've just moved over, around, or through. And then a new one comes along and everybody says, this is the real deadline. And then it's not. So, I know that this Tuesday is supposed to be the realest of the real, the deadline that supersedes all other deadlines, and that on that day, we will finally have resolution. But something tells me we are not going to be that lucky. Something tells me that's not going to be the case. I know this. I don't care. I'm not interested. My interest waned and drained out of this a long, long time ago. I'm more interested in Antonio Brown driving his Porsche 100 miles an hour. He runs fast and he drives fast. Tevin Coleman is my guest. Tevin, it's great to have you on the show. How are you? Uh, how you doing, man? I'm, I'm pretty good. Good, man. Good to talk to you. So I mentioned you're coming off a huge game with more than 150 yards from the line of scrimmage. You had a couple of TDs against a physical Washington team. When you look at how the season's played out, that's pretty much a must-win game. How much pride for, was there then for you to show up the way you did and have the kind of game you did in such a big day? Um, yeah, it was definitely a lot of pride for me and the uh, team because uh, we worked real hard to, 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 to get these Ws on the road and things like that. And it was real tough to get W on the road. And uh, we're just happy we, we got to, to, to do that. So, 
Tim, the other thing about that, too, the other interesting aspect was the fact that in the buildup to that game, Washington corner Josh Norman was saying that with Devontae Freeman down, he felt like your offense was going to sling the rock, and then you go out there and you run all over them on the ground, and you have some success in the air. But how much did, did how much pride is there in reminding defenses that we can hurt you on the ground, we can gash you on the ground, and we're not just all about throwing the football? Um, yeah, um, that's definitely a big part of the game and a big part of the offense. Offense, um, you know what I'm saying. We we run the ball, pass the ball, and things like that. So um, we just gotta got to keep with the run um, to open up big big plays like that. We're talking to Tevin Coleman. One more big play I want to talk about, and it's not so much what you did on the ground. The offensive line did a really nice job, but I want to talk to you for a minute about your blocking. You delivered with that flip of Mason Foster. Take me through the play. What did you see, and how good did it feel to deliver a block like that? Um, you know, he you know, he's a very good defensive player, very good uh pass rusher and um we uh stressed hard to, to 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 get that and um take care of that. So, um, you know what I'm saying? I'm I'm a very much humble guy, so but I mean that, that, that kinda fired me up a little bit because that's one of the things uh I, I am working in, in my game, so we're talking to Tevin Coleman. I could see that. Listen, you guys started one and four, and it seemed like everything was going the wrong way. Now you've won three straight. You've jumped right back into it. What's been the biggest difference between the first five games and the last three games? Um, you know what I'm saying. Uh, we've definitely been hurt in uh, in those in those losses and things like that. We learned a lot, um, so um, we just practiced hard on it and things like that. So um, we're just real happy to to be able to finish games and and things like that. So. Yeah, I understand that injuries were a part of the game, but you're right. I got to acknowledge yeah, that. Definitely. The team was really banged up at that point. And when you're watching guys like Freeman, Keanu Neal, Deion Jones, yeah. all pro bowlers, all going on IR, is there any part of you thinking, man, we simply cannot catch a break this year? Um, yeah, definitely, definitely, man. Um, it's tough to see those guys go down. and definitely need them and want them back. But, you know, uh, next man up, things happen. You know what I'm saying? Injuries happen, so... It's just the next man up. The next man has to go and take that role. Tevin Coleman, my guest. The Falcons are playing really good football right now. Hard for me to believe, but you're already in your fourth season. And I know how much time you put into your game and working on your craft, even down to the smallest details like making sure you don't just cut on your inside leg. So how different are you now as a player than when you first entered the NFL? Um, yeah, when I first entered the NFL, man, it was was very tough uh, in the plays and Learning defenses and blocking and reads and everything was fast, but now everything has slowed down. Um, I'm learning more, still continuing to learn, but um, yeah, just learning more in defenses, offense, and things like that. Play, so I'm just more comfortable back there and uh, take the game slower. So, you know, it seems like the fans like they watch you guys and they only think about the game. They think about the game prep, maybe, maybe. But I think fans forget that you guys all have lives off the field as well. So it's November, which means that we're getting close to the first birthday of your twins. Now, you've talked about how much having them has changed your outlook on life. Kind of lay that out for Mm -hmm. me. What kind of an impact have the twins had on you, and how has your perspective changed because of it? Um, You know, they had a real impact on me, my kids, and my girl. And um, they just helped helped me get through the day, helped me get through my hard times. And things like that. They just bring so much joy to my life. So um, that really has helped a lot. So, You know what I wonder? Like, I remember my son. I've got a 17-year-old son and a 13-year-old son. It seems like yesterday we brought the 17-year-old home. Jake, man, my life changed dramatically, dude. Oh, that was definitely. just one. That was just one. Yeah. What's it like when you bring two home? 
man, it's definitely hectic, but you know what I'm saying? At the same time, it's a, it's a blessing, and I'm just so thankful for them, and they're just, just, just amazing. So um, they bring real joy to my life, and um, I'm happy to have them. Alfonso McKinney joining us. Alfonso, great to have you on the show, Alfonso. How are you? Oh, uh, man, thanks, Jim, for having me. Dude, it, is so great. Good. it is so good to have you. I was so anxious to talk to you. So you're coming off a 14-point game on Monday night, Alfonso, but you are the biggest story right now on the Golden State Warriors. Considering where you started, what is your life like right now? Um, I mean, considering from where I started, I mean, my life, you know, it, it did a whole 360 pretty much. Uh, you know, just being in Luxembourg and being in the Bay Area right now, you know, it's a complete, you know, complete difference. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about Luxembourg in a minute, but I think for people to really understand this, Alfonso, we go all the way back. You were not highly recruited coming out of Marshall High School in Chicago. As you yourself have said, you know, you kind of viewed yourself as a role player. As you look back, you did whatever you could to help the team. What were you thinking about in terms of your basketball future? Was the NBA even on your radar coming out of high school? Um, well, coming out of high school, not it's something that I always wanted to do, but um, you know, at the same time, like I knew, like that, I wasn't, I wasn't highly recruited to those big, you know, big time colleges, you know, where, um, you know, where most guys come out, you know, one year and you know go to the NBA, but um, you know, it was still, it was still a goal of mine and you know a dream of mine, but you know, at the time, it was just. You know, me trying to focus on going into, you know, my freshman year of college and just trying to, you know, adjust to that new situation. Alfonso McKinney joining us. So what happens is you end up going to Eastern Illinois and you didn't play a ton your first year. And then you start to put up numbers in your second year and then you transfer to Wisconsin Green Bay. How did that come to be? Um, well, the whole Green Bay situation came about, um, you know, my my coach at Eastern, he had ended up getting, he was end up getting laid off <laughs> and, uh you know, I thought it was it would be a good move for me to go to another school and Wisconsin Green Bay was you know, it was one of one of my first choices. Um my best friend went there and like the guy who recruited me to Eastern Illinois, he had actually got a job at Wisconsin Green Bay. So it's kinda of like I had ties there already. And um, you know, I just thought it was the best opportunity for me and you know, I went on a visit and you know, as soon as I got there I pretty much committed. <laughs> Or so you obviously liked what you saw. Then you get there, and during your redshirt season, you tore you tore your meniscus. You work your way back. Then in a midnight madness dunk contest, you tear it again. I mean, so we got some serious adversity. What was that time like physically and emotionally after you tore it again? Uh, I mean, it was a tough time for me, you know, especially coming off a redshirt year where, um, you know, we had a good team that year. And um, I definitely thought I could have contributed, but, you know, it was my redshirt year, couldn't play. And um, you know, I had worked that whole year and you know, going into that next year, you know, I was I was set to have, you know, a big role on the team. Um a couple guys had, had graduated and um I was stepping into a, a spot where I would get um a lot of minutes. And um, you know, me tearing my meniscus the second time, it was you know, it was a it was a major setback because it was it was nothing like the first time. Um the first time, you know, I was back in maybe like four weeks, four to six weeks. But um the second time, you know, it, it went from being a four to six week recovery to a six to eight, eight to twelve, and so on and so on, and um, you know he's gonna come back whenever he's ready to come back, and you know that 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 whole year pretty much I I wasn't you know wasn't a hundred percent, but um, you know we had a good team that year, and I thought we was gonna make the tournament, so you know I kind of just pushed myself to get out there and just play, you know even on the 
65% knee. And, um, you know, we ended up coming short of the tournament. But, um, you know, it was, just, it was just all about getting back out there and just trying to get a feel for everything. Golden State Warrior Alfonso McKinney is joining us. So you finally get back out there. And then right around your senior year, you start to feel like yourself once again. And you're starting to put up some numbers, but then it comes time to put your name in for the draft or go to workouts. And at that point, it didn't seem like it was the right thing. So you go to a couple of EuroLeague camps in Las Vegas, and then a coach from Luxembourg reaches out to you. What were you thinking? For example, did you know anything about Luxembourg at that point or Luxembourg basketball? <laughs> I knew nothing about Luxembourg. Right? I actually, um, I mean, when I first heard the, the name Luxembourg, I mean, I went straight to Google and I Googled it and, um, you know, found out where it was at and just, you know, looked on Eurobasket and stuff like that, like trying to see things about the league. But, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a lot. But um, at the time, I mean, it was my only it was my only opportunity. So, you know, I just just took it. All right. So you get over there and I've seen some of your highlights from there. It does not look a lot like the NBA. (laughs) Dude, how would you describe the courts and the arenas where you played? Oh man, the courts. First off, it's nothing like nothing like the NBA. Um, but you know, some courts, some courts were like you know typical hardwood floors. But then there was some courts. It was kind of like I want to say it felt like it felt like concrete to me. Hmm. And I, um, the gym where we played at the most, you know, it had that that green. It was a green court. The floor was hard. You know, the rims were you know a little shaky. But, um, yeah, you know, a lot of those gems wasn't, wasn't it. <laughs> Alfonso McKinney is joining us. Golden State Warriors having a huge year. The thing is, though, regardless of the conditions, you were showing up huge. In your first game, you had 20 in the first half. There were a couple of Americans on the other team. What did they make of your game? Uh, to be honest, you know, my first game we played, uh, we played the team in our division. They were, like, number one. You know, they projected to win, like, our league or whatever. And, um, you know, our first game we played, I remember being on the free throw line and uh, one of the other Americans was like, he just asked me like, man, like, why are you here? Mm. <laughs> um, like you said, I had like 20 the first half and then I think I ended up finishing with like 30-something. But, you know, different teams, you know, the Americans would, they would they would ask me that same question, like, like, like why are you here? <laughs> and I'm just like, you know, it's the only thing I've had. <laughs> So, you know, I really just made the most of it. You did. And the thing is, though, some of these other guys you played with, they had day jobs, right? So, like, one guy was a police officer. Another guy worked at the airport. Some worked for the government. So, what were they like as players? Um, I mean, as players, they, you know, they, they were much different from me. You know, I played play basketball because it's, you know, it's how I make money and stuff like that. But those guys, you know, they just did it, I feel like, for, you know, recreation. And, um, you know, there's a, a big difference, um, you know, between them and me. Um, you know, they were doing it for fun. You know, they didn't really have to be there. Uh, you know, some guys wouldn't come to wouldn't make practices. Um, a lot of practices we, wouldn't, we weren't able to run like five on fives because everybody wasn't there. Um, like I said, a lot of dudes had day jobs and, you know, they would get done with work. And, you know, for them, you know, coming to practice and stuff like that, it was just, you know, like extra recreation and cardio and stuff like that. <laughs> Um, you know, for me, it was it was it was my life. So, 
That was real. Golden State Warriors, small forward Alfonso McKinney joining us. So you battle, man. You grind and you work, and then you make it back to the States in 2016, and then you go to play to Mex or go to Mexico to play. What was the experience like there? Um, I actually like Mexico. Um, besides playing four games a week, right? Um, double back to backs. You know, it was that was tough, but um, I actually had a good time in Mexico. I was on a good team in that league. Um, when I actually came in, you know, they were number one. And, uh, you know, we finished number one and um, ended up going all the way to the finals and, you know, lost in, like, game six of the finals. But um, just that overall experience was great. Uh, met a lot of people. Um, you know, got to see Mexico a little bit. Um, never had been to Mexico. But, um, got to see different parts of Mexico. And, um, yeah, it was a great experience. All right, so and I'm moving ahead because there's so much to this. But you come back to Chicago and you get a call to see if you can come run with some of the Bulls players at an open gym. And you've got a moment in one of the open gyms where, as you told the athletic, quote, almost dunked the bleep out of Robin Lopez. What do you remember <laughs> about that moment, Alfonso? How big was that for you? Uh, yeah, I got that call just to um... – you know, Coach Randy Brown had called me and asked would I be able to come to the gym. And, you know, I kind of just woke up and just walked right out the house and went there. Um, it wasn't too far from me. And, um, yeah, like I had an open run with them and just was playing. And it was like one play I almost dunk um, the the Lopez guy from, from Chicago. And, like, everybody went crazy. And, um, I mean, I looked up and, you know, I was coming back every day you know, for like a month, you know, working out with those guys. Um, unfortunately, I just wasn't able to make the training camp training camp roster with them. But, you know, it was the first year they were, they were going to have a D-League team. And, you know, they they invited me to, you know, come to trials and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, I ended up making the Windy City Windy City um, Bulls team. And, you know, I had a great year with them. All right, so you make it to the D-League. And let me just jump ahead again. You're playing for my guy Jerry Stackhouse in the D-League. Man, I love Stack. What did you learn hey, from Stack? Stackhouse, that's my guy. <laughs> yeah, right? What was he like to play for? What did you learn from him? Uh, well, Stackhouse taught me a lot, you know, on the defensive end. Um, you know, most of my most of my career I was playing, you know, playing the big guy because, you know, I was always one of the taller guys on the team. And, um, you know, I was always forced to play like the four. Um, I even played the five a little bit in the wow. G-League. But, um, yeah, you know, going to Toronto, you know, I was – you know, transitioning into being a, a three um, and playing on the wing, you know, most of my time. And, you know, Stackhouse helped me a lot, you know, transitioning from, you know, guarding big guys to, you know, being able to guard, you know, smaller guys. And, um, you know, just teaching me the defensive rotations and, you know, just how to get things done on the defensive end. And, um, you know, helped me out on my game a little bit on the offensive end as well. Alfonso McKinney joining me for a couple of more moments. I mean, so you get that opportunity, and then you make it to the NBA. You play for the Raptors. You get to camp with Golden State. And, again, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here. But then you make that team. But at the end of camp, you get a call that the coach wants to see you. Steve Kerr wants to see you. Generally, that's not the best news. What did you think when you heard that? Um, I mean, when they woke me up on the plane and said that he wanted to meet with me, I kind of, in my mind, it came through, you know, it's judgment time. So um, you never know you know, what the outcome going to be in those kind of situations until, you know, you actually hear what's going to happen. And, um, you know, I went back there and sat, talked to him, and, you know, he had let me know that, um, you know, it was an open roster spot, and, you know, I was going to get it. And, uh, you know, at the moment, you know, I didn't, I didn't really show it at the time, but um, in my mind, like, I was, you know, super excited, and, um, I mean, couldn't believe it. 
I got to ask you this then. It's one thing to make that team, but you come back home against Chicago, and the day starts by meeting with a realtor. You buy your mom a new house. Then you play that night. You hit four threes. You go 19-10 and 10 in a win in Chicago. How amazing a day was that? Oh, man, probably one of the best days of my life. Um, you know, just being able to, you know, to, to sign off on, on those documents to give my mom a house is probably one of the, you know, one of the biggest things, one of the biggest things I've done. Um, you know, people always ask guys when you get a bunch of money, like, what you going to do first? And, you know, my response was always, I'm going to give my mom a house. And, um, you know, I was able to do that um, a few weeks back. And, you know, coming out on the court and doing that in front of, you know, all my family and friends, it, it you know, it was just, it was unbelievable, to be honest. But, um, you know, everybody, everybody had fun that day and everybody enjoyed it. Um, we went out to eat after. Um, family got to meet some of the um, players, and um, you know everybody enjoyed it. It's an amazing day. It was not that long ago you were running with cops and airport workers in Luxembourg, <laughs> and now you're playing with Steph Curry and Kevin Durant. Man, does it feel really surreal? Hey, major upgrade, man. <laughs> major upgrade. Golden State's ten and one. They're in first place in the Pacific. Alfonso McKinney, my guest. Alfonso, it's an amazing story. Great to meet you. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Uh, no, thanks for having me. Good night now! How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive. Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love.